0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ezra Rosser, Professor of Law and Associate Dean of the Part-Time and Evening Division at American University Washington College of Law. We will discuss his essay, On Becoming Professor, A Semi-Serious Look in the Mirror, which was published in the Florida State University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Ezra.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about this paper, which was written a fair number of years ago, uh, but still feels really timely to me in a lot of ways. Uh, and I really enjoyed reading it. I thought it was really funny and, uh, I'm glad you're here to, to talk about, you know, something a little bit older than, uh, than what we usually talk about.
1: Great. Yeah. And I just reread it for this purpose as well. And, uh, uh, I was both entertained and horrified by myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I wonder if you could provide a little bit of context for listeners to the paper, um, sort of broadly speaking, what was the motivation for writing this particular essay and the kind of personal context in which it, it was written.
1: So, you know, part of the motivation was just annoyance, right? So, uh, I was annoyed by myself, I was annoyed by the job. And and I think we all go through periods when we're just annoyed, right? Um, And uh, for some reason that year I was annoyed and so I needed an outlook look for it. Right now I'm writing op-eds as my outlook, uh, you know, where I release that annoyance. But uh, at the time I decided this was a good way to do it. I was in between other projects and um, that was the main motivation. The other was my mentor. uh, One of them is Rob Williams who'd done a great similar parody when he was at roughly the same stage in his career. And my goal in life is to be like Rob, so it seemed like an appropriate time to write this.
0: (laughs) Well, so in, in terms of the framing of the piece, were there particular kind of prior articles or essays in a similar vein that were sort of inspirational for you, or maybe models that you might've used or thought about when putting this essay together?
1: Yeah. When I started writing, I didn't think that there would be uh, other than Rob's. I mean, Rob's Williams is one really was. It was all about how he called law professors story haters. Um, And so I knew his was out there. And then I this is a little embarrassing. I read a couple articles on the infield fly rule and thought that they were parodies, but they later found out they were actually serious scholarship. Uh, but I, at the time, thought, oh, ha ha, we're writing about a stupid thing. Uh, that gives me more freedom to write about a stupid thing. So um, those were sort of the, the only sort of things I looked at in advance of uh, sitting down to write.
0: Mm. Well, so when you you talk about storytelling, I mean, your essay is in many respects, very much a story kind of elements of your own story itself. I wonder if you could talk about the story that you tell in this particular essay, and why it sort of felt like an important one to tell at that point in time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was important for me, mainly because we had you know, I had gotten, I graduated law school. I've done a fellowship that was fairly well paid, you know, for on a national level, but wasn't enough to make me really comfortable. We had a geo prism with no uh, AC those two years, et cetera. And then I moved into a Kenya track job and life just opened up as far as financially. Right. And that shock um, was something that uh, as the, parody says I've been dealing with for a while and my parents were relatively poor. Um, and so over this period of education, I got more and more comfortable with it, but it wasn't, it wasn't until I got the tenure track job that I felt financially secure in a, a way that was notable for me, but also what it, what does it mean for me to be making at that time, you know, three times as much as my uh, mother.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, and so like, I mean, I felt like this was there was a kind of struggle within you when writing this paper to sort of make sense of the circumstances you found yourself in. Did do you think that that is an experience that your you saw your peers having, or maybe that you see some students having uh, when they're in law school, and maybe don't always um, entirely identify with the other students in their class? I think.
1: Are some, and I should say, you know, uh, there's another person in my faculty, um, a newer faculty member, who had much worse as far as financial experience as a child. Mine was uh, lower middle class, but it wasn't tragic in any way. Um, uh, And so part of the challenge is just being honest about that, right? Mine was not a horrific financial experience at all as a kid. We had food, we had shoes, as I talk about the parody, we had shoes with duct tape, but they were still shoes. Um, So I think at the time I wrote it, my main issue was I wasn't seeing anybody like me. Uh, You know, when I talked to peers um, and their faculty member, I remember one lunch conversation that actually happened in the last five years. So after I wrote it, but we were talking about how we grew up and one person was like, well, I was, you know, relatively poor too. I understand. Um, and I was like, Oh, what did your parents do? Oh, they were both lawyers. And I was, part of me was like, no, <laughs> you know, uh, that's not the same as a bus driver. So um, I, since then, since I wrote it, I have encountered more people, uh, even in the Academy who grew up in, in different circumstances than seems to be the norm. But then there are far fewer, I think people that are class movers upward then I see professors who say, oh, my parent was a professor. My parent worked on this high-level government thing. Uh, That seems to be more the norm than the uh, reverse.
0: Well, I I mean, I wonder if perhaps some of that outsider perspective colored – the way that you talk about legal scholarship and by extension, the legal Academy in, in the essay, because on one level, a lot of, a lot of the article is storytelling, but a lot of the article is also kind of storytelling about legal scholarship and sort of reflecting humorously on what people do when they do legal scholarship.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, Part, there's two parts. One is it was meant to be funny, right? And so some of the things I write, I wrote mainly because I thought they were funny, not necessarily because I was taking it too seriously. Uh, but the other more serious side on that was um, I was encountering people for whom they seemed intent on displaying how smart they were constantly. I mean, you'd have lunch with them and it would be here I can display how smart, right? It was sort of in this pre-Google everything where it mattered if you could come up with random facts. Uh, And those conversations just depressed me. So I needed to write about it, I felt. Um, But beyond, I mean, I I think one of the challenges, and maybe this happens post-tenure, is it's great when people get to a space where they don't need to always be proving themselves, where they can be more open and honest. And so that, I was not finding that in the academy at the time I was writing, Uh, I've since found it much more, um, and I think that's just part of the growth of through your career as you start to develop your own community.
0: Well, one thing that really struck me is in the framing of the essay was the way in which you kind of underscore the highly formulaic way in we in which people in the academy seem to go about demonstrating a sort of performative kind of intelligence.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things um, that, and that you emailed about that you sort of teach a class on legal writing, I think one of the, or on uh, writing uh, scholarship. And I think one of the things that's interesting that happened after I wrote this was I wrote an article, um, it was my best placed article. And before I started writing it, I deliberately just read, so I'd read the material for it from all sorts of sources. And then in the month before writing, I only read top articles, articles placed well. right? Um, and that helped develop the sort of the content wasn't going to change, but the approach was going to change. You know, I was going to get a longer introduction. It was going to, you know, one of the ones that I remember being quite deliberate about was the use of the word thick, uh, because all law review articles by elite authors at the time were saying the thick theory, this, this is a thick understanding. I was like, I'm going to use thick, even though to me, that's a ridiculous word to have to say. Um, and in the parody, you had the same thing where people would be like, well, I happen to choose New Haven. No, you chose New Haven because you're signaling that I'm an elite. right? So um, uh, some of those deliberate efforts of saying I'm part of the in crowd, to me, were also just both annoying and worthy of making a parody about.
0: So one thing I couldn't help but wonder reading the article, which had a kind of almost feeling of literary criticism to some parts of it, was to what extent you think the kind of form of legal scholarship affects its substance and the kinds of things that people are able to say effectively when they do legal scholarship?
1: Yeah, you know, and this was the odd part about rereading it now In my, uh, this may just be, you know, I've become such a part of the system uh, over time and being in uh, the job for so long. In my original parody, I made fun of the fact that there was really excessive length uh, to hide a pretty basic idea. My main concern right now is I realize I write long uh, and law reviews want it to be, you know, under 20 to 25,000 words. And I'm writing one right now that, I finished part one and I'm at 13,000 words and I'm thinking, oh no, how am I going to get it down to the right leg? Uh So I don't know if that's me or if it is uh, having changed or if it's something about the form, but I think the larger point on your question is the need to appear novel does continue to be something that uh, I would say annoys me or that um, bothers me about current legal writing. So I've read this year, I um, read a lot of articles um, that by other people, uh, not quite in my field, but, um, you know, that I was asked to review. And the first thing they all say is, I'm doing something that's never been done. And you sort of want to be like, no, that's been done many times. Uh, uh, and they even cite to the ones that do similar things, but there's the need to claim novelty when the honest thing is, is you're the person is really writing something related to what other people have done just with a slightly different angle. Mm.
0: I mean, do you think that that need for the appearance of novelty is intention in any way with any kind of goal we might have of pursuing actual novelty?
1: Maybe. I think, you know, I think when I read those sorts of claims of novelty, I read it as the uh, one is just a playing the system, right? Uh, the, the law review editors who are going to select your piece, uh, argue, hopefully for a high-end journal, don't really know whether they can, and even when they read it, they won't know, is this something out there that's been done many times or not? And so partly it can be just gamesmanship. Um, and if that's true, then what I'd love to see more of happen more that doesn't seem to be happening is then revisions by the author in the editing process to tone down the claim novelty. Um I think the other bigger picture answer to your question is the novelty or the claim of novelty is being made in a way that does drive people towards higher theory. So, away from grounded scholarship. Um, Because if it's more grounded, it's going to be really transparent, not, not novel. So, there may be a degree to which the novelty invites. High theory um, and sort of excessive reliance on theory.
0: Mm. Well, so in, the, in the essay, you make a number of relatively specific and quite humorous criticisms of various forms that legal scholarship tends to take uh, attributing the prevalence of those forms to people at different kinds of institutions or different places in their careers. I wonder whether you think that those observations still track similarly today. And if legal scholarship has changed, has it changed for the better or for the worse? Yeah,
1: I think many of those Things particularly at the elite still continues to uh, be true. I think we all know people. Uh, once you've been teaching for a while, where you have the sort of Yale comment, and, and not to pick on Yale too much because it's also other elite schools, but that sort of comment makes it broad enough that no one can disagree, but also broad enough that it's unclear if you're adding anything to a useful dialogue, right? Um, and I think that pattern I still see is very prevalent, um, especially this, you know, and I wonder what it's driven, driving it, but it could be that it's being driven by fear of being critiqued, right? If you make it sufficiently theoretical and sufficiently broad, then no one can pin you down. And there's value for risk-averse people like law professors in claiming that space. Um, The other categories, I think one, maybe I overstated what People at not as high rank schools do. um, Because even at not as high rank schools, we all aspire to follow what's being done at a few schools. Um, And so, uh, and if the more you follow what's being done at a few schools, the more your chances of being noticed at those schools are, right? So I think to some degree, I may have overstated the difference between schools.
0: So you just described law professors as risk averse. And I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. I wonder how you think that kind of risk-averse tendency in law professors affects the kinds of goals that they set for themselves and also that they're kind of encouraged institutionally to set.
1: So I, I have no special knowledge on this. <laughs> I mean, we all have our opinions, right? our theories. I'll say one, you know, if I was to write a new parody, one of the things I would uh, add to the parody would be the law professors who repeat the exact same argument time and again across multiple law review articles, right? There is a sp- subspecies. And I just, it and, to me, it's, and if you acknowledge it, fine, right? If you acknowledge I'm not saying anything new, you have a footnote that says this was put in this chapter, which I've already published, I'm simply repeating myself. That would be great. But the challenge is for so many law professors is that they repeat the idea. I had reviewed one scholar, right? Because I had to introduce them for something, had to reread their entire essentially material. And it was all a repetition, including the sites used, the arguments made, the language in the article. And to me, that may be part of, um, the risk aversion, right? So this person discovered, if I write this, I get well-placed and get a lot of praise. And so they've decided not to write anything new. Um, uh, that's an extreme example, but I think we do see people sort of getting in a, in a niche and staying there for a very, very long time. Um, it can be defended, you're now the expert, uh, And also that there are constantly new students and new faculty members. So you do need to remind people you're the expert, Uh, but it still doesn't make for very interesting things across the different years.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Yes. With every article, the, the, uh, the projected audience stays essentially the same.
1: Well, well, or it gets younger. I mean, I think that's the challenge. The younger people don't know you did that five years ago. Uh, And so they continue to, Pete, praise on you for your brilliant idea you had in the article that was published five years before, but why are you publishing the same article now five years in the future with barely any and sometimes not even any updates?
0: Yeah. So in the essay, you use as kind of a metaphor for the legal profession or the way we kind of think about incentives in the legal uh, legal scholarly profession as chasing the gold star right? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you think it informs the way we think about what we're doing and why we're doing it.
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of different answers. And I would say I am not above chasing the gold star. I chase the gold star. I think the gold star changes over time. Um, One of the challenges, you know, I'll just say in my own life is after you get tenure, which this piece was written before tenure, after you get tenure, some of those gold stars you want may come into conflict with your research gold stars that drove you to tenure. Um, but you do things to get those gold stars. And um, in my own life, right, uh, I've, you get to the more time you spend at one particular institution, the more you care about that particular institution. And so I have recently be, been chasing gold stars within my institution in a way that I never, certainly not at the time I wrote the parody, thought would be true.
0: Mm. I mean, how consciously or um, deliberately do you think we collectively think about the kinds of incentives that we create and the kinds of goals that we encourage each other to set kind of institutionally as law faculties? And are there ways that you think we might be able to do that more effectively?
1: I think some of the things are really transparent, right? If somebody gets a good placement on their article, they get noticed within their faculty and they get noticed outside their faculty. And that's the big gold star that everyone notices. Uh, you know, where your people within your field place something. Um, and even if you haven't read it, you give them credit for it. Right. Even if you don't know if it's actually good. Um, and institutions do the same, right? So when people are up for tenure, right, it's much easier to have a article that was well-placed compared to an article that's not as well-placed, even if the article was the same. Um, and so we sort of ignore the crapshoot uh, part of it when we come to decisions about what's happening with quality. And to some degree, that makes sense. I don't really know, say, intellectual property. And so the best... Marker I have are gold stars associated with it. I think the challenge as an institution is that each of these silos has none of the, those gold stars shouldn't determine what is actually valuable within the silo, What should matter within the silo is did you have an impact uh, and help the world in some way? And that is just something that's very hard to measure. And so we go with these proxies.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, looking back at this article quite a few years later, are there aspects of it that you no longer endorse, things that you endorse in a similar or different kind of way, or things you would have added that you, you didn't think about at the time?
1: I don't know. I, I had that same question with myself when I read it today. And I think there are things that happened after the article. So if I was to do, you know, uh, a follow-up article, I've even thought about what it would be about. So this first one was about learning to like Brie. The next one would be about learning to like fancy meat uh, because David Brooks did this just horrendous op-ed in the New York times about how his poor friend, couldn't have fancy meat. And so they ate at the subway because he didn't want his poor friend to feel um, awkward about life. Um, And so I was going to do a a follow up on that. But the topics would be different because I'm at a different stage in my life. Right. So, you know, the modern for having been slightly older might be which neighborhoods are people looking into buying houses? How much many hours do faculty talk about neighborhoods and schools and the sort of upper middle class to upper class concerns that faculty then make their own. Um, But, and I think this is, this piece as written, I think resonates with people at the junior side of their career. Um, And if I was to do a follow-up, it would have to be about, you know, on becoming, I'm, you read my title, I have the uh, closest to a BS uh, associate dean title you can have, so Associate Dean of the Part-Time and Evening Program means I help with that, but it's not the big associate dean, right? So there's a misleading part in the title. But if I was to write an on becoming associate dean, it would be a different type of concern. Um, uh, the financial stuff would still be there for me uniquely, but um, but many of the other things would change, right? Uh, I think the I'll stop rambling too much. I'll say the one thing that I was... What's held me back on writing a subsequent one is I'm now more concerned that the people I'm parodying will recognize themselves than I was as a junior professor, which is ironic because junior professors are supposed to be very concerned about how they appear. I was much more courageous then, but now that I'm friends with these people, there are friends that would just make for great parody material, but I'm nervous about doing that to my friends. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, one thing that really, a thread that ran through the essay that I really noticed was a kind of class consciousness or consciousness of kind of changing class circumstances. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, maybe why you felt that that was important and whether that's something that's hard for us to see kind of institutionally as, as law professors, sometimes in relation to our students?
1: Yeah, I think it's hard for law professors to see in relation to students, in relation to staff, in relation to other faculty. Unlike other markers, you know, race where it's visible, um, uh, class is often something we just don't talk about. Uh, and so, and even if we talk about it, there's a degree to authenticity. I had another person Again, um, a law professor, perfectly nice person, who also thought that the article resonated with him, and I'm sure it did in some way, but he was the child of a law professor. Uh, To me, that is not the same, right? And so uh, it is very hard, I think, for us to, in the legal academy, to really deal with class, and that's partly because we've chosen not to, right? We choose to imagine our students is all going off to law firms uh, and all coming from pretty strong privilege. And a lot of them do, uh, but we, that's a choice, right? It's a choice not to have affirmative action that's related to class. It's a choice to uh, when hiring to care more about self preservation uh, presentation than if the person has overcome difficulties to get where they are. So, um, all led by we had a bias training thing at our school, as I'm sure many schools have. And the person leading the training said most people tend to think and prioritize in their identity the places where they're relatively less privileged.
2: And in my own life,
1: that's not true. I think a lot about the area financial, right, my wealth, where I am privileged. But I think about it because of the transition from where I was as a child to where I am now. Um, and I think for so many faculty that start off relatively poor or for students that start off relatively poor, we just have a norm that uh, money is not the issue you should be talking about. Um, and students pick up on that and learn to be quiet if they come from less privilege uh, and faculty do as well.
0: Mm. Well, so Ezra, in closing, I wonder if you could talk about another kind of transition. I couldn't help but feel that this essay was a kind of transitional work for you. And I wonder if you could talk about that and how it kind of fit into your scholarly work more broadly, and whether you think that it has any kind of influence resonating in your subsequent work.
1: Good question. I would not make it as intellectual as that. I thought of it more as I needed to barf on the page somewhere uh, to just get out my angst. And I did so. Um, it was less of a deliberate, let's fit within a larger body of work. And in fact, many people told me you should not publish this because uh, both it, it's too snarky, it'll limit your options for lateral uh, higher somewhere, and maybe it did. I haven't lateraled at all. Uh, but uh, I just still felt the need to get it off my chest. Um, the larger thing that is true um, is that, uh, fortunately, with this article, I have every, every time when people discover it, I get more emails from mainly junior faculty, sometimes uh, law students, that where it resonated with them. And that's been great. I just get emails from people that felt that their path through law school had not been expressed, and they thought this article was great because it said things that they themselves were concerned about. Um, And most of my articles, that's not the reaction I get, right? I'm lucky to get somebody to maybe cite it, right? So uh, to some degree, that was a reaffirming at least as a personal story, even though I'm not sure how it translates to the more academic work I do. Um, the, one, the last thing I'll say is this piece ignored another thing that's very central to me, which is I grew up in part on, a, on the Navajo reservation. And this one just has a brief footnote about that. Um, and that was a, a choice, uh, but it's a choice that I think, I'm not sure I did the right choice at the time.
0: Mm. Well Ezra, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this delightful and incisive essay and uh, I look forward to a follow-up someday.
1: I do too. I hopefully when my I've decided that when my book comes out I will uh, get my courage and actually go after people I know, but we'll see <laughs>
2: Don't think that I am a fool. I am the big professor, and I never went to school. I come to this country when the people ask for me to teach the broken English at the university. Thank you for the hospitality session, boys. Thank you for the hospital session. Thank you. My grandpa went to college. He had a lot of degrees. He had a dozen titles, and he gave them all to me. So I don't have to study. My grandpa knew everything. He left me his diplomas, and I got the right to sing. Oh, I am the big professor. Don't think that I am a fool. I am the big professor, and I never went to school. I come to this country when the people ask for me to teach the broken English at the university. (laughs) Thank you from the very heart of my chest, Pastor. Thank you. If you want to be a barber or a waiter in this land, you got to speak to the English that nobody understands. If you want a good job, don't forget to come to me. I'll teach you the broken English and you make lots of money. Oh, I am the big professor. Don't think that I am a fool. I am the big professor and I never went to school. Oh, I come to this country when the people ask for me to teach the broken English at the university. You touch me, boys, you shake me, uh, you move me completely, Asian. I work about two months in one university, and then I lost my job when they come to tell me that there, the chief professor, he put up a big squawk because all the teachers have to speak the way I talk. Oh, I am the big professor, don't think that I'm a fool. I am the bigger professor and I never went to school. Oh, I come to this country when the people ask for me to teach the broken English at the university. Yes, <laughs> You've made me sentimentality all the way from